0: You're probably using a semiconductor right now. Listening to this podcast on your computer or on a smartphone, there is most likely an integrated circuit, a little piece of silicon onto which transistors have been etched, making up a microprocessor. And without that chip, your phone or computer, it, it wouldn't work, it would just be a brick. And those chips are becoming strategic assets, increasingly important for countries and companies to access. Without them, whole industry sectors could come to a halt. Take for a recent example automakers. Increasingly advanced cars require chips to power entertainment systems, brakes, navigation aids, you name it. Amid a global shortage of chips, several automakers have had to idle plants, cut shifts, or stockpile partially completed vehicles while they wait for required parts to arrive to finish them. And that's just one example. Cars obviously aren't the only thing that can be affected by upheaval in this global semiconductor market. So. Today we're chatting with Naomi Wilson, the Vice President of Policy for Asia at the Information Technology Industry Council. From the US-China Business Council in Washington DC, I'm Ian Hutchinson and this is the China Business Review Podcast. It does go without saying, but semiconductors are both themselves complicated and also the end result of a complicated supply chain.
1: So as with most things related to technology, uh, it's pretty complicated. And uh, a lot of it is very dependent upon the global supply chain. So essentially over the last few decades of um, semiconductor development and enhancement, industry has figured out the most efficient way to take the, uh, the raw materials uh, and the R&D uh, and the intellectual capacity and put them together in the most efficient way possible.
0: Again, that's Naomi Wilson. She's the Vice President of Policy for Asia at the Information Technology Industry Council, which is a global group representing technology companies.
1: Uh, And over time, what that has meant is that some of the manufacturing that happened in the U.S. has shifted to um, less expensive locations, uh, primarily in East Asia. So a lot of the intellectual capacity um, still comes from the US and from uh, other multinational companies. And then it is transferred over to uh, East Asian economies uh, where they have foundries uh, that ultimately put the product together, you know, based on government incentives and uh, labor costs, they're able to do that at, Uh, the most effective price and quality equation possible.
0: So that's a very general lay of the land of this topic. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're currently sitting in a bit of a chip crunch at the moment. There's multiple factors, but as almost all things these days, the pandemic is, of course, one of them.
1: Well, there are a number of factors, um, but obviously the pandemic itself has caused uh, a pretty dramatic shift in how we work and the extent to which we depend on technology uh, on a day-to-day basis. So that's really driving the increased demand for semiconductors. And the capacity will get there, uh, but at the moment, it is um, sort of the, the supply chain writing itself. Over time, the supply chain and companies have really shifted from the sort of just-in-case manufacturing model to just-in-time. Um, so just-in-case being, you know, we have reserves of supplies uh, in case we need to supplement. And just-in-time, we're functioning at maximum efficiency, and we don't have excess uh, resources, and therefore we don't have wasted resources or money. So, you know, those shifts in the supply chain do happen over time. Uh, and the pandemic is certainly one of the driving factors right now. Uh, and companies are, are working to increase the capacity and, and manufacturing. And, you know, we'll see that uh, even out over time.
0: And so another pandemic adjacent trend we may be hopefully looking at here soon is that as countries get more shots into arms and companies are able to operate with fewer restrictions, we'll hopefully see economic recovery. And that could also affect the global supply chain for these chips.
1: I don't think the demand is increased uh, is decreasing, rather uh, any time soon. Semiconductors have really become an integral part. Of everyday life and everyday technology, and I think you know the auto sector is a good example of that, and perhaps you know an example of where that sector, in spe- specifically, didn't fully realize the extent to which they were dependent upon semiconductors um, and the extent to which they had to be forward planning um, for an increased demand in vehicles and their for an increased demand in semiconductors.
0: Operating on this principle of expected sustained increases in demand for these chips, countries including the United States and China are picking through their options of how to assist companies in creating fabs to deliver chips where they're needed. Not to say that this is new. Countries, especially in Asia, have long enticed companies to set up fabs with tax breaks and other incentives.
1: So semiconductor uh, production and manufacturing is a very expensive endeavor. To establish a fab,
0: for clarity here, I I should note that a fab is a term for a plant that manufactures chips.
1: Typically, requires about ten to to twelve billion dollars investment. So, you know, there's a lot of front end investment that needs to happen, um, and countries have recognized that if if they want manufacturing to take place in their country, they need to offer incentives um, and you know, China and and South Korea and Singapore have a history of offering incentives to both foreign and domestic companies to build fabs and foundries uh, in their um, territory. And this comes in the form of land grants, tax incentives, grants to subsidize the costs of um, building a fab. And and this can be up to 40% of the cost. Uh, so that's obviously pretty significant. And when you look at the global supply chain and you know how to use resources most effectively, the incentives really have driven a lot of, of companies to look at the landscape and say, okay well, you know the intellectual work and the development that you know still takes place uh, in the US, but the manufacturing component we can get a lot more, bang for our buck and, and produce, you know, the type of, of high quality semiconductors that we need at a, a much lower cost. So that's, that's really what's driven, you know, the, the manufacturing shifts.
0: So in order to incentivize bringing some of that manufacturing back to the United States, there has to be a bit of an alignment of what works for companies and what works for government stakeholders.
1: You know, as we talked about, building fabs is expensive. Uh, And if we want more fabs built in the U.S., then the U.S. government has to offer competitive incentives uh, along the same lines that other countries are doing. So tax incentives, grants, subsidies, the ability to identify and, and use land, all of those are essential tools in ensuring that the U.S. can compete with other countries in terms of providing these incentives, and that will help make the supply chain more secure. You know, The administration is taking a comprehensive look at the supply chains through you know, various executive orders and rules and regulations, and that's certainly merited and, and a, you know, something that the U.S. should be looking at. But it's really essential that uh, this be an industry and government partnership. Industry is intimately familiar with all aspects of their supply chain, and the U.S. government, while you know they have clear interests and also information about uh, geopolitical dynamics and um, intelligence, they they don't have the full landscape. And so you really only get that full picture when you bring the private sector and the public sector together to do a comprehensive analysis. And to make government incentives a reality, we do need Congress um, to act. So they've taken a very helpful first step in passing the CHIPS Act.
0: Ah, the CHIPS Act, the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act or CHIPS for America Act. They're really good at their acronyms, aren't they? Anyways, the CHIPS Act is a step in the direction of providing U.S. government assistance to companies to build fabs in the United States, but it does have one glaring flaw.
1: So the CHIPS Act is intended to increase U.S. capacity in chips and semiconductors. And uh, it does lay out a number of different mechanisms um, that the U.S. government can rely on to incentivize increased manufacturing, but it's not funded. Uh, so that's that's really the main piece uh, that industry is concerned with at this point. You know, it's it, the Chips Act has the right idea to develop government incentives for increased manufacturing in the U.S., but. As we've we've discussed several times um, in this talk, it's an expensive prospect. So, you know, what we're what we're really talking about in order to incentivize companies to build fabs in the US is, is probably around the order of about $3 billion per project um, in order to make a dent um, and to really develop the, the capacity in the US such that we're competing with with other countries that offer similar incentives and, and bringing some of that manufacturing base, again, not all of it, but some of it that will make us more resilient to the US.
0: So we've covered this a few times, but these plants are expensive. They're very expensive. So of course, the idea of creating security in your supply chain isn't something that you can quantify easily, but just for the sake of argument, what would the semiconductor industry need to really get domestic chip manufacturing to a level that would create meaningful positive impacts on American access to chips? What would that bill look like?
1: In, in terms of, of money, what most in the semiconductor industry estimate would be needed in order to really make a dent and shift manufacturing is somewhere in the range of 20 billion to 50 billion. Uh, and obviously, the the more of an investment, the the more we can expect an increase in uh, fabs in the U.S. Money is obviously always a difficult issue uh, with with Congress, and so they're going to have to reckon with that and determine how much they need to invest and how much you know they're they're willing to to spend in order to get that um, capacity. And so I would say on the low end, um, at around 20 billion, you probably get about 14 baths, uh, to the U S over a period of 10 years. Uh, and it goes up, you know, probably closer to 20, um, the closer you get to that 50 billion mark, but obviously that's very much a pie in the sky mark.
0: And of course, China has its own versions of subsidizing the creation of these fabs and aiming to draw talent to their country. And it's not new. They've been at it for a long time now.
1: China has been on their indigenous innovation drive for well in excess of a decade, you know, the last few decades. So this isn't a new construct for them. Um, Certainly semiconductors have gotten increased attention. As advanced technology and emerging technology has gotten increased attention from pretty much all countries. I think the the trade war and the increasing bilateral tensions uh, between the US and China have incentivized the Chinese to double down on their efforts to manufacture emerging technologies and to manufacture semiconductors at home. I will say, you know, the Chinese model of pouring money into specific sectors is not always as effective as people think it is. Despite China pouring tens of hundreds of billions of dollars over the last several decades into semiconductor development and manufacturing, they are still behind the curve. They are still not the most competitive in terms of the advancement of um, the technology itself you know, they can certainly produce at a certain level, but, you know, semiconductors keep getting smaller and faster and better. And China's, you know, still a couple of generations behind. Um, That doesn't mean that they won't catch up, but it's important to put that in perspective because, you know, there's this misconception that China just dumps subsidies into these sectors and they come out in the lead. And that's not necessarily the case. So it's also important for the U.S. government to keep in mind that, you know, to a certain extent, let China spend itself into the ground. The U.S. has an inherent advantage and the leading semiconductor companies right now have an inherent advantage in that they are the most technologically advanced. They have the best intellectual capital and research and development, uh, and talent pools. And so, you know, those are really the driving factors um, to having uh, the most competitive semiconductor market possible. And, you know, we really need to keep that in mind as we watch, you know, China spend increasing amounts, which is certainly a problem. And I don't want to discount that, um, especially when it comes to government subsidies. You know, there are clear trade problems with that and, uh, you know, fairness issues, uh, in terms of competitor companies that don't have the, that same access to subsidies, but at the same time, you know, we have to be cognizant that they're not necessarily getting the best results. And so we shouldn't be trying to match them dollar for dollar. um, at this point, we need to recognize where our inherent advantages are, and try to strengthen those. That historically has been in our research and development and in our intellectual capital. That's the other piece that the US really needs to focus on and not lose sight of. You know, Keep investing in research and development. Keep allowing companies to sell to markets across the world so that they can take those profits and reinvest them in the US and into research and development that will lead to the next generation technologies.
0: So that's your basic backgrounder in where semiconductors come from, why they're important, and what some of the industry view as necessary to make U.S. production of these chips competitive with China and other Asian producers. And the bottom line on how the U.S. could encourage more semiconductor production at home?
1: I would just emphasize that, you know, it, it, it really needs to be a partnership between industry and government. Uh, I can't overstate that. There's just so much combined knowledge within the private sector and the public sector that needs to be aligned in order to first identify, you know, where are our weak points and where are our, our strengths? Because we, we shouldn't be dumping money into areas that are already our strengths. You know, when we shouldn't be scared or intimidated that, you know, China is making so many significant investments, um, and we shouldn't assume that those investments are going to yield real results. And so, I think that that's that's part of the problem right now in the general view of China as you know omniscient and omnipotent in terms of the the party itself. Um, and we have to recognize that you know China has internal problems too, and. They don't always have the right policy solutions. And, you know, so it's equally important to look at China from a realistic perspective and say, okay, they're really competitive here, but we are also really competitive. So we don't have to worry about that aspect of the competition as much. We just need to be prepared to compete, whereas other areas, you know, where we need to constantly be thinking about the longer term. And research and development is one that is constantly, you know, underrated, uh, and it, it's so basic, and it, it's really the foundation for all of those future technologies. You know, we need government to recognize when there are emerging areas that are not necessarily profitable right off the bat. You know, I use the example of, of vaccines a lot. You know, government um, funds research and development for the development of future vaccines and other outside parties also fund that. And that funding is necessary because it is a long-term goal and it's a strategic goal. It's exceptionally important, but it's it's not going to be driven by profit. And so we have to realize and recognize those areas where it is really crucial that government make that investment and think in the long term and, you know, think in terms of not only R&D and funding, but who do we need to? We need to continue to attract the best and the brightest from around the world, including Chinese students and engineers. And so, you know, we we shouldn't be hamstringing ourselves and denying ourselves that intellectual capital based on um, an overblown fear of, uh, of, of China and what China's capabilities are.
0: The China business review podcast is a production of the U S China business council, and also a companion to the digital magazine of the same name. You can always read more articles about the recent economic and business aspects of the U S China relationship on our website at ChinaBusinessReview.com. If you like the show, please leave it a rating and review as it will help other people find it. As always, thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon.